Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to finish our study of uh, Hebrews chapter 12 today. We'll be in verses 25 to 29. When we get into the new year in January, we'll finish the book with the final chapter, Hebrews 13. But let me uh, pray one more time, and then we'll dive into Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 29. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to, to come together and, and just to, to sing once again of your faithfulness. Your word teaches us that you're always faithful, that, that you have steadfast, hessed love for us. It doesn't leave. Your word teaches us that you've made, us, you've made a covenant with us. Th- th- this covenant that is not dependent upon our good works and our perfection, but, but it's built upon your grace, giving us mercy instead of what we deserve, which is justice. Well, we just praise you for that. We're going to sing about that for eternity. And Lord, we gladly, gratefully sing those words today. And because when we ponder those things, when we reflect upon them again, we admit, Lord, that those places are our happy places. Those are our joy-filled places. Lord, all of that, believing all that, finding joy in all that, we, we understand that that's a work of the Spirit. So, Father, send your Spirit now and fill this room. Do that work that only He can do of softening hard hearts, taking apathetic hearts, hearts that are maybe in this room that don't care a lick about the gospel, the truth of any of this. Soften their hearts. Help them see the glories of the gospel. Help the gospel not just be a word, but something that is truly good news to every heart in this room today. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, friends, every generation finds certain passages or certain biblical truths hard to believe. For example, even in Jesus' day, this was true. In John 6, Jesus taught that he was the only way to God. It's that passage where he said he was the bread of life. And then at the end of that passage, in verse 66, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They heard the voice of God, Jesus himself speaking, teaching these truths, hard truths, and they fell away from him. It was difficult for them to believe. Take the next step in in the history of the church, that first generation of Christians. For those Jewish Christians, they really struggled to believe that righteousness was not obtained by keeping the law. See further the entire book of Galatians. But even the Gentile Christians, they had struggles. See further the, the two Corinthian books, right? They, they struggled with uh, the teachings on sexual purity and what do we do with food sacrifice to idols. But, but then keep moving forward in church history and there's this moment where Christianity is finally given religious tolerance within the Roman Empire. And then all of a sudden things kind of got flipped, right? 
where, where it really cost something to be a Christian to now it was kind of to your advantage to be a Christian. And as a result, there were a lot of people who claimed to be Christians who weren't genuinely Christians. And there's whole books written on that, like 1 John and James. They struggle with those passages. And then you get into the, to the Roman church era where they established these religious sacraments and, a, and, and these religious requirements for salvation. It wasn't any longer salvation by faith alone through grace alone. It was salvation by keeping all these good works. And so there's books like Romans and Galatians that they struggle with. But even moving forward into the period of the Reformation, where they got these main things right. You're saved by faith alone, but via God's grace alone. But, but then it upended the social order where all that had been entwined with the church and the state there in Europe and all of that was blown up. And then they struggled with, okay, well, how does the church and the state now all fit together? And they struggled with uh, living peaceably with each other and struggled with, okay, maybe we disagree on this doctrine, but we can still live peaceably with each other. And, and listen, that's the ground for the English Civil War, which results in King Charles I being beheaded but also the Pilgrim Fathers coming to America. Thinking about our own country. We have this, this theme of the history of our country where we've been haunted by the sin of racism. Like as we look back, we see people who claimed to be Christians, yet they owned slaves. Man, just a series of verses and truths, right? Going back to Genesis 1, that we're created in the image of God, thus we have dignity. Love one another, sacrificially love your neighbors. All of that was, uh, was difficult for them, and they ignored those passages. I, I love MLK's I Have a Dream speech, but, but my favorite thing from MLK is his letter from a Birmingham jail. And I, and I think what is so great about that letter that he writes and publishes in the newspaper is that he was writing to pastors. He was rebuking my guys. And he was right. Pastors were wrong on this. Then we step into the sexual revolution, which began with, I think, the devaluing of marriage and, and no-fault divorce. And, and, and many Christians spoke with moral clarity on these issues, but many just went along with the culture. And now we're in a day where many Christians are vilified for holding to a biblical view of sexuality. Listen, every generation has hard passages to believe, difficult passages to not only understand, but to really live according. That's why Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 is so important. That's why this passage is so needed, because it's going to call us to believe even the difficult passages, even the ones that cost us something. However, I think part of the good news of this is, is there's a strategy in there on how to do it. There's, it's not only just this admonition, but there's also a strategy for how to live it. So what we're going to see is that when we reject the word and when we reject the kingdom, we're in danger of falling away. And listen, that's just the pattern. So when someone begins to reject the word, they're beginning to take steps sliding down a ladder of falling away. If they reject the kingdom, the call to live according to the kingdom, when people reject that, they then begin to fall away. However, the straightforward solution that this passage is going to give us is to hear the word and also receive the kingdom. And then it's going to take us to this glorious end. So there's a warning as well as a strategy. But the first thing I want you to see here on your blanks is hear his word because of his heavenly warning. 
Look with me at verses 25 to 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The first thing I want you to see here is in verse 25, the link between God and His Word. There's not daylight in between God and His Word. Now, we understand that God's Word comes from inside of Him, right? It's God-breathed. That's the foundation for the fact that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. There's no error inside God, so anything that comes out of Him could not be erroneous in any way. But also, that teaches us that His Word is connected to His person. It's connected to who He is. So you can't say, listen, I love God, but I'm going to reject the teachings of the Bible. There's no daylight in between God and the Word of God. They're connected. If you're rejecting the Word of God, then you're actually rejecting God. The second thing I want you to notice is the change of tense here, if you're not a grammarian. In the previous section, there's a, this is in the indicative tense, but now we're in the imperative tense. What that means is, is he's now commanding us something. He, he's, he's giving us an admonition, and the command is, is to receive the Word of God. So if God said it, we're, we're commanded not to refuse it, but to receive it. The third thing I want you to see is that the reason we're to receive it is because the stakes are now higher. Yeah, before he spoke and it shattered a, a mountain, but now he's speaking and all of heaven is going to be rattled. The, the picture we receive here is about, is about the gospel actually being clearer now. You see, Jesus is better and His grace is more glorious than what we had before. Therefore, the stakes are higher and we have less of an excuse to reject it. It's better today. It's clearer today. We have a better picture of the power of God. Revelation has progressed in such a way to where we understand things better now. We're on this side of the cross. The stakes are higher and we have less of an excuse to reject it. Now, fourth... He references back to Mount Sinai to make this qualifying point. Now, if you weren't with us last week, what we looked at was two mountains, if you remember. We looked at Mount Sinai and we looked at Mount Zion. And at both of those mountains, we learned something about God. At Mount Sinai was this moment in in Exodus 19 where, where God comes down and He gives His people His law. But it was a terrifying moment. It was a holy moment. God comes down in fire. And it was such a powerful fire that the whole mountain is covered in smoke. And when God speaks, the whole mountain rattles. It shakes. I mean, they're dealing with a mighty God. And what he's saying here is I'm raising the stakes. I'm raising the stakes because God is even more powerful than that. We should endure because not only is God so powerful that he thunders from Mount Sinai, shaking the mountain, But he also is so powerful that he roars from heaven, shaking the entire earth. Therefore, this is a greater warning. Endure. Are you tracking with this logic? Mount Sinai was amazing. Are you with me? That's a powerful God. But he's talking about a God that's coming. The same God. He's even more powerful than that. 
His, this heavenly roar is going to roar in such a way that not just one mountain is going to shake, but the whole thing is going to shake. Are you with me? The stakes are higher now. Haggai 2.6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That's why we endure. We endure because God is so powerful that He will roar from heaven and the entire creation will shake. But remember, there's a strategy in here. This is not just a warning. That's certainly a warning, right? Like we're dealing with a person, a being, that when he speaks, mountains rattle. Smoke covers an entire mountain. All of creation is going to crumble. We're, we're, we're dealing with that type of God, and as a result, we have a warning here. But, but there's also a strategy here. What he's saying is, he's calling us to endure, and the strategy to endure is to receive that word. Don't reject it. Don't spend your whole life saying, okay, let, let me lower the word. Let me parse out different things. And I, I'm going to lower the word and then try to get under it. it listen, it's all about love. Forget all this. It's just love. And I'm going to just get under it right here. It's not lowering the word and then just sneaking under with the least possible faith and commitment that you can muster. It's saying, this is a glorious God. Receive all of it. Take all of it in. Faithfully follow all of it. Okay, what does it mean to receive the word? Well, it means believing it's true in your mind. Understanding it. With, with, with mental assent, believing it in your mind. But also letting it then drift down to living according to that truth in the rest of your life. It can't just be something in your head. It has to be something that, that permeates your entire life. And also, hearing God's word means receiving it even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's unpopular. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. An ethical example and then a relational example. Receiving God's word is believing and living according to the clear ethical teachings of the Bible. I'll give you one. Galatians 1.27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So receiving God's Word means not rejecting that even if you feel differently or even if all the experts in the world around you say something differently. It's saying, that's the Word of God. I'm going to understand it. I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to go that way. I'm going to live that way. I'm going to live according to that truth. I'm going to disciple my children according to that truth. It means believing it with my head and then living it within my life. Maybe that's easy. Maybe that's red meat for some of you. But let me meddle with you a little more. Let me give you a relational teaching. Remember Matthew 18? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say it as seven times, but 77 times. I was discussing that passage with a friend this week and we concluded we both agreed that this command is so incredibly difficult but but it's maybe our greatest struggle listen if you're one of those quick to forgive types may the lord bless and keep you i wish i was like you but for the rest of us the rest of the bitter folks in the room like that is challenging right i'm with you you're right they were wrong but forgive them I did forgive them again. I did, but I, I know you forgive them again. 
That's what His Word says. That's the clear relational teaching of Scripture. And if you think that's hard, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is the clear teachings of Scripture. But where does that go? Revelation 20 and 21, it speaks when, about when Christ returns. And He's going to roar. There's a, there's, a, there's a roar about those two passages. The great white throne judgment. And then he brings in the new heavens and the new earth. We have this heavenly warning. He's saying, listen, he's going to roar like he did at Mount Sinai, but he's going to rattle the entire earth. Therefore, friends, hear his word. Receive his Bible as true. Endure by living faithfully according to it. Hear his word because of the heavenly warning. Well, friends, there's a day coming when God's going to roar from heaven. He's going to shake the earth. But what follows that? Look at the next verse. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, and, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a call to gratefully receive the kingdom. Question, what follows the heavenly roar that shakes the earth? The answer is the kingdom. So in the first section, it's, okay, hear the word of God. The second section is receive the kingdom. Now, now notice the quality of that reception that he gives. He says that we are to gratefully receive the kingdom. But we're not to receive it begrudgingly. We're to receive it thankfully. We're not to receive it with yawns. We're to receive it with glee. We're to welcome in the kingdom. Okay, well, what is the kingdom and what does it mean to receive it? The best definition I can find for the kingdom is it's the rule or the reign of God. That's all that it is. So it is when life is as God would want it to be because he's ruling. So every kingdom has a king. He's the king. He oversees a dominion. And in that dominion, it functions the way he wants it to function according to his rules. That's the kingdom of God. So it's this, it's this sphere where things are operating in the way that God wants them to operate. And we have glimpses of this in the Bible. It's where God is glorified as righteous. He's not belittled or mocked. He's held high. And God's people worship him accordingly. And as a result, God's people flourish. There's real human flourishing in the kingdom of God. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more war. There's no more division. God is reigning. You have friends who get along. They go on adventures together. Nature is enjoyed. And righteousness will flow down in the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. It's a glorious picture. It's our hope, right? And we're to receive it. Now, before we can understand how to receive it, I need to give you one technical principle here on understanding the kingdom of God. This is technical, it's straightforward, but it's important. It's the already not yet principle. What do you say? I mean, what it means already not yet. In some sense, the kingdom is already here. In another sense, the kingdom is not yet here. So there's a ton of comments on that in the New Testament by Christ, but what he's saying there is there's a sense that when Christ comes the first time, He's ushering in the kingdom. We get taste of the kingdom. We get taste of all those glorious things here. All those, all those things that we see, we, we get taste of them here, so we, we already get taste of them, but they're not ultimate taste. When he comes the second time, that's when we really get taste of the kingdom. So it's not yet here in its perfect sense. So for us today, we can't back up and say, kingdom's not here, I'm not going to engage at all, I'm not going to engage the world around me, 
I'm just going to throw out my hands. I'm not going to try to make this world a better place. I'm not going to engage on these issues. I'm not going to try to help human flourishing. We need to do all that we can to help usher it in. However, we also know that we're not going to be able to usher it in. It's a, it's a failed project. All utopian attempts end in dystopia, right? Like we're not going to be able to perfectly bring it in. Why? Because our king is not here yet. He's coming a second time. And when he comes, he's going to bring it. So we work for it here and then we hope for it in eternity. That's the kingdom of God. But we're to receive it. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to live according to that kingdom that's already here and not yet here? It means that we're to live as citizens of a coming kingdom, even though it's not fully here yet. Let me give you the best picture of this. Do you, do you remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5? In, in that sermon, Jesus says that we're to be poor in spirit, we're to mourn, we're to be meek, we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're to be merciful, we're to be pure in heart, we're to be peacemakers. All of that is a, is a kingdom ethic. He's telling you to live for another world, not this world. He's saying in this world, live as if you're a citizen of that world. Like, like poor in spirit, the humble poor in spirit people, they don't succeed in this world by worldly standards. But he's saying, forget that, live by my standards. Like, like the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like, like that's, that's not 101 on how to be a successful person in this life, right? All those things come with great troubles. Like, think about it. What, th- this type of life is the type of life that we're supposed to gratefully receive. So even though humble, poor in spirit people, they might accumulate less power, we're, we're to gratefully receive the kingdom anyways. So even though it, it might be painful, that we need to open our hearts up to hurting people and thus mourn others? Well, well, we do that anyway because it's this pathway to the kingdom. It's how we receive the kingdom. Even though we, we might struggle saying no to certain desires, no to certain friends, and, and thus desire righteousness, there's a, there, there's a difficulty to that, there's a battle to that, there's a struggle to that, but, but that's how we receive the kingdom. The next one, even though our flesh will want to give people justice when they deserve it, but we're not going to do that. We're going to give them mercy because we're living for the kingdom or receiving the kingdom. We need to be pure, like at the soul level, not like the world around us where, yeah, they're pure on the outside. They can maybe, you know, put on that makeup or that mask. We're to be pure at the soul level. You see, we, we need to strive to, to be peacemakers even if we could win the argument. Like that's living according to the kingdom. That's receiving the kingdom. That's radical. That's strange. That, that's, that's very countercultural. But we're to thankfully, gratefully, and even joyfully live that way. Now let me stop here. I pick on the gray hairs a lot in here. Greg, I always look at you and think of you. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> if you're a gray hair, Greg... You know that the longer you live this way, the more joy it brings. Amen? He's wearing our Redeemer kids' top preschool the first hour. When you live that way, when you receive the kingdom, when you live for His rule and reign, there's sacrifice to it. There's hard things to it. But man, you gain joy. You gain Christ in the midst. Therefore, endure. That's the strategy for endurance. Receive the word, hear the word, 
keep receiving the kingdom. Yeah, but there's sacrifice. There's a cost to it. I know, but what you gain is so much better. Friend, you gain joy. You gain spiritual maturity. You gain greater faithfulness. It leads you to joy. That's why we're to endure. That's why not only is it a command, but it's a strategy. It's how we live our life because it goes to these glorious places. Well, that's a great place to land. The final admonition is offer acceptable worship. Look again at verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. As a result of the promise of this heavenly voice of God, offer up acceptable worship. That's the final charge. Like going back to where we've been, God's voice is even more powerful than what was on display at Exodus 19. That thundering voice in fire and smoke, shaking a mountain, his, he was holding back in that moment. There's coming a moment where he's going to roar from heaven, and not a big mountain, but everything's going to rattle. Everything's going to shake. Therefore, hear his word. Believe the Bible. Receive these truths. Live according to it, even when it's hard. Even when it's unpopular. Because it leads to spiritual maturity. It leads to greater faithfulness. It leads to endurance. And it leads to joy. That's the pathway to joy in this life. But what follows his heavenly roar is the kingdom. So when Jesus returns, his rule will follow. And it's going to be a glorious day because everything is as it should be. We have future hopes pertaining to God's glorious word and it impacts our faithfulness in the present. And in a similar way, our future hopes related to the kingdom, they impact how we live today. So even though we're not uh, in the kingdom, even though we're not there yet, we live as if we were there today. And as a result, we experience the joy of the Lord. When, when the world pridefully grabs more power, we're, we're to humbly and meekly, meekly and quietly live different lives. When the world go, gets its pound of flesh, we're to give forgiveness and mercy. That's the pathway to joy. Listen, receiving the kingdom is countercultural. Receiving the kingdom is difficult. Receiving the kingdom is good. Receiving the kingdom leads to spiritual maturity. Receiving the kingdom leads to greater faithfulness. And receiving the kingdom leads to joy. That's why receiving the kingdom leads to worship. And that's where we land. When we endure living this way, we experience the awe and the glory of God. When you live this counter-cultural way, this faithful way, you're left with this only response of seeing God as glorious and worshiping Him. You're left with this roaring lion from heaven. And all you can do, the only way that you can respond to Him at that moment is simply to worship Him. The call of this is ultimately to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The, the, the conclusion is to, is to uh, profess that He's good, that He's true, and that He's your heart's desire. That's where we land. There, there, there's nothing better for your heart. There's nothing that brings more joy to your soul than seeing Him. We talk about here that the end is is theologically driven and heartfelt worship. Receive His Word, receive His kingdom, and awe at His glory. 
Well, where and how do you need to be more faithful to His Word? Do you need to receive His Word as true in some ethical debate that's swirling around you? Like, do you need to take God at His Word regarding sexuality? you need to believe God's Word is good in the area of your relationships? Like, do you need to take God at His Word when He tells you to forgive 77 times 77 times? <laughs> do you need to take Him at His Word to keep forgiving? Do you need to live God's Word in your spiritual life? Do you need to take God at His Word when He tells you to take every thought captive? Take it off the problems and the circumstances up here and put them up hoping in God. Do you need to take Him at His Word spiritually? Are you receiving the kingdom with gratitude? In other words, do you receive the kingdom as what makes you happy? Or do you think all these other things are really what makes you happy? Do you, do you have kingdom values? Or, or are you really driven by worldly values? What, what makes you happier? Satisfying the desires of the flesh or living for His glory on mission? Like what makes you happier? What brings you more joy? Vegging out on Netflix or digging deep into God's Word? Are, are you striving to be a peacemaker with those you disagree with? Or are you getting your pound of flesh at every opportunity? Again, are you receiving the kingdom of God with gratitude? None of that does that have to do with your happiness. It also has to do with your hope. Or are you hoping in the kingdom? What I mean is, are you driven by the trinkets of this world? Or are you striving for crowns in heaven? What makes you happier, being popular here on this earth? Or being accepted and faithful in the new earth? What brings you more joy, expanding your kingdom or expanding his kingdom? Are you striving for rest in this country or rest in the kingdom that is to come? All of these questions, they're ultimately about our hearts, aren't they? They're ultimately about the condition of our hearts and our worship. Therefore, are we offering acceptable worship? The past couple of years, we've had some good discussions around here of, okay, what, what's our vision for worship? And we've landed, and maybe this is clunky or technical, but... But we've said, listen, we want to be theologically driven and heartfelt. And what we mean by that is we don't want shallow lyrics. You know why? Because we're talking about a glorious God. We don't want plastic lyrics. I've heard people say that, you know, some Christian songs, they sound like Jesus is my boyfriend songs. We have something better than a boyfriend. Amen? We have something better. We, we don't want something shallow and cheap. And listen, I'm going to put my cards on the table. God forbid that we're the frozen, chosen church. God forbid that we're a passionless church. May that never be true of us. You know why? Because we're worshiping a God that when He speaks, fire comes and mountain shakes and the entire earth crumbles. How can we not sing with passion when we sing about that God? It must stir our hearts or something's wrong. I, I, I re refuse for us to be a church of polite Christians. May we be passionate Christians. God's too glorious and the gospel's too good for stale religious traditions. Sit here, stand now, say this, repeat this. Forget all that. We have something better. 
There's something that stirs our hearts. Something that is more glorious. May we never be the polite, frozen, chosen church. This fall I had a, for me, was an an inspiring experience of uh, someone who was really uh, living for the kingdom, experiencing the kingdom, living for the glory of God. I was... I was so inspired by this guy's life. And maybe, maybe this story is silly to you, but it, it impacted me. Um, I went on a, a trip with a, a group of pastors to uh, meet with different church planters in another city. And, uh, you know, we were, we were trying to understand how they're doing, how we could encourage them, how we could support them, understand kind of the nature of church planting in that area. And, and, and it had what I'll describe as a, a stunning unchurched region, okay? Now, now, let me give some perspective to that. In our county, and I track these numbers, we have nearly 700,000 people that just never go to church, okay? Like, we need more churches here, like, in a bad way, all right? The southern United States is increasingly becoming de-churched, unchurched. We need more churches all over the southern United States. But, but just to give a stat that kind of gives the flavor of this area, okay? This region had 15 times more marijuana shops than Bible-believing churches. I, I, I still have trouble kind of getting my head around that. Side. I mean, that, that's a wild number, okay? And, and that maybe gives a, a flavor of the spirituality of that area. Let me tell you about this guy. This is what was inspiring. He comes and picks us up from the hotel in his, in his old pickup truck, Okay. And, and for me, I, I just had a funny church planting moment, okay? Because as I'm climbing in the back, there's, there's a couple of things that happens. Number one, he just had like church plant promotional junk everywhere, okay? Like teacher, you know, all this stuff. And so he's like, hey, I got coffee cups. I don't want to, you mind holding it? Yeah, okay, I'll hold the coffee cup. So we're driving down this old track and the coffee cups are rattling. I'm just terrified that it had a cool logo on there and, you know, and I'm terrified I'm going to break his coffee cups. Every church planter has a side hustle, so he's got his, 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 um, uh, all the tools for this business, and we're moving them around to get in the back so I can sit there and hold the coffee cups, and, and we're just, you know, bouncing along to uh, the restaurant. But, but ultimately, what was inspiring to me about him it was really a couple of things. Number one, this man had left a successful church plant in order to plant this new church, and he had left a prestigious denominational job to go plant this church, a church that loved him, a church that loved his wife and his family, that they, they were taken care of. It was successful, well done. And he left that to do this. He was then hired to oversee all of church planting in an entire state and was really good at it, okay? He was taken care of. It was a good position. He leaves all of this to go to a hard place to plant a church. That was the first thing that was very inspiring to me. But the second thing is what was ultimately inspiring to me. He didn't care about any of that. (laughs) He could care less about any of that. He cared about giving the rest of his life to making disciples, sharing the gospel in a hard-to-reach part of the country. Like when we had breakfast at that restaurant... This guy was just beaming with passion. He was talking about the, the, the girl at the restaurant that he was talking to and sharing the gospel. And, and you know, the, he was, she was kind of hearing him on this. He thinks he was getting through. He thinks he was close to really hearing the gospel and, and understanding it and believing it. He was talking about his church. And, 
Yeah, they were plugging along. The numbers were ridiculous. But you know what? God was providing. They were moving forward. He had all these challenges. And I'm thinking, this is a nightmare. And he's like, no, no, no. God's doing this and this. And then he's going to open this. And we're going to believe that he's going to do this. And he goes, you know, we haven't baptized anybody. But I just bought a, I just bought a baptistry because I know what's coming. How about that? Like, that's, that's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of man I want to be. He was filled with joy receiving the kingdom. He didn't care about any of the creature comforts of this world. He and his wife were giving their lives in order to spread the kingdom in a hard-to-reach place. He was receiving the word, receiving the kingdom, and thus he was filled with joy. Brothers and sisters, because of the glory of God's power and perfection, as well as the glory that he has graciously made this new covenant with us, Hear the heavenly word. Receive the kingdom. And then offer up these deep, doctrinal, passionate worship words to him. To to the one who roars from heaven. Don't be the frozen, chosen Christian. Don't be the Christian whose life doesn't look anything like what the Bible calls us to live. Rather, be the one that knows the deep words, that knows the one who roars and mountains shake, and the one who is coming again. He's going to make all things right. Live for that day and and, and worship him. Worship the roar from heaven today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you of this vision of who you are, terrifying, glorious, but good and gracious. You're so complex. You're so beautiful. Every time we think we we have it all figured out, we've put you in a box, the box gets blown up again. Lord, we thank you that your grace is so much better than anything this world has to offer. We thank you that you don't call us to be perfect but you've been perfect for us. May we be a people that accept your word, receive your kingdom, and worship you from pure glad hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.